0: This is Gene Lance on the Worker's Beat Extra. I have been in the labor movement on the labor side of the struggle for more than 50 years. Every year around Labor Day, I'm given opportunities to talk about labor significance and history. It always seems a little bit odd because I realize that almost every person I am talking to is actually an American laborer. That is. They worked their whole lives for a paycheck from some employer. And yet, we laborers know very little about our own history because our bosses control all of the TV, all the movies, the books, the newspapers, the radio, and all of our sources of information. But once a year, at least, someone asks me to talk, and I am extremely grateful for the chance. This year, I'll be speaking for the College of Complexes on the Thursday before Labor Day and on Sunday before Labor Day I'll be speaking to a Unitarian organization and of course on Labor Day I have a small part in the Labor Day uh, program that will be presented by the AFL-CIO. Humanity is beset today with several crises that cannot be confronted except by joining forces with working families against our employers. That should be evident to everyone. The pandemic has taught us that we can't survive unless we establish a cooperative model instead of continuing with the present competitive one. If the pandemic or the next pandemic doesn't kill us, then certainly the floods, fires, and draughts may kill us. The only advantage of nuclear war is that it would be quicker. People think of three ways that we can avoid a dystopian future. One of them is with a small, dedicated group that can do something that will inspire or wake everybody up or spark some kind of uh, instant change. It should be clear that no such thing is likely or even possible. Even if such small groups could make a mighty change into a better world, how would they run it? How would they avoid anything but chaos afterwards? Another way, I think, that most people prefer is that we will just vote ourselves into a good future. We'll get a good president, and then, the next election cycle, we'll elect an even better one. Eventually, we'll start to approach perfection through careful voting. The problem with voting our way into heaven is that working families aren't the only player in this game. The employers know all about manipulating elections and all other forms of politics. They aren't indifferent, they aren't asleep, and they do not lack for ruthlessness. The third way that people think change might come about is to use what working people have used all along. Use the only thing that has actually been proven over and over to work, and that is to withhold our labor. If it were possible to organize a general strike of sufficient size and commitment, working families could change the world. So whether you think we're going to vote our way into heaven or have a general strike, it makes sense to unite our forces and study a bit of our joint workers history that can be a positive step. So turning then to labor history there are lots of ways to organize labor history lots of history is organized just by looking at our greatest heroes that's pretty much how history is presented in the books for example moses moses organized the slaves uh, spartacus spartacus freed the slaves also uh, toussaint overture freed the slaves in haiti uh, abraham lincoln they say freed the slaves so we have we have our heroes who affected working people and we can study history that way. Another way to look at organizing labor history is to look at the legislation that was passed. For example, the National Labor Relations Act of 1935 was a great victory and the Taft-Hartley Anti-Labor Act of 1947 was a great defeat. So we can look at it in terms of legislation. It's not what really matters in labor history. What really matters in labor history is how well we organize, how thoroughly we organize, and how long we're able to organize. That's the framework that I will use. How well organized can we get? Prior to the 17th century, working people were either mostly slaves or serfs. They didn't have much chance to organize. In the latter half of the 17th century, in England, and only in England, the employer class took over from the aristocracy. In other words, they ran things simply because they were rich, not because they were born into a wealthy family, but simply because they were rich, they could hire people. It was a giant step upward for them to, to beat out the aristocracy, and it was also a giant step upward for the workers they employed because the workers were no longer slaves with no rights at all and no longer serfs with very few rights. The employer class went on to take over the rest of the world by the end of the 18th century. So the whole world was either a capitalist nation or they were colonies. They belonged to the capitalist nations by the end of the 18th century. After the capitalists took power, workers were allowed to change jobs. Instead of being exploited by one employer, they could choose to be exploited by someone else. They still had to be exploited. They still had to have jobs, they still had to have paychecks, but they had a lot more choice in the matter for the first time in history, so it was a big step up. They didn't just naturally start getting better wages. The natural level of wages under the system that we live in is survival. In other words, If everything sells for the cheapest that it can sell, if everybody buys the cheapest thing they can buy, the same thing is true of employers. And they tend to hire the people who will work for them for the lowest wages. So if all workers are competing for wages, just like any other price competition, then all workers will be working for the the lowest possible wage, which would be survival. And that's how much money they would make under the natural order that we live in. The only way that people began to get more than survival was by organizing. And they figured that out very soon and well, they were organizing right away. There were, there were unions in America before there was the United States. So they would get a bunch of workers together and threaten to stop working unless they received better wages and working conditions. And they also began to organize political associations, which in many ways are more important than unions. If they hadn't organized, then wages would have never risen above the survival level. The first unions were basically insurance agreements. Workers would contribute a small, regular sum to a widows and orphans fund. That way, when one of them got killed or injured, his widows and orphans could draw on the fund. The bosses didn't mind these arrangements, but when workers began to organize and make demands on their bosses, the modern form of class struggle was born. In America, they didn't really succeed much with political parties. Here in the United States, we have no major political party for workers, but we do have unions, and we keep open the chance that our unions will advance to political significance sometime in the future. So let's talk about how unions are organized. Most union, locals, are organized around a single shop or point of production. In some industries, most notably in transportation, the working families have to organize by employer no matter where that employer may be. So, cookie workers may organize a single Nabisco bakery in Akron, Ohio, But the Airline Pilots Association has to organize an entire airline at once, no matter where it goes. So a union may also amalgamate and make separate contracts with different employers. So the Airline Pilots Association doesn't just have one airline under contract. It has several of them. And my union, my own local union, began by organizing one giant Aircraft Factory in Grand Prairie, but it presently has contracts with four smaller separate corporations. Above the union local level are conglomerates of unions that we workers usually call the international. There's an international union of auto workers, for example, and I belong to that as well as to belonging to my local. The International Union of Auto Workers has locals all over the United States and some in Puerto Rico and Canada maybe some other places, and those international unions facilitate the fortunes of their locals because they have hundreds of thousands of members. They can also be a powerful political force. Most of the internationals subscribe for a very tiny fee to the American Federation of Labor Committee for Industrial Organizing, the AFL-CIO. That's the federation for all labor unions in America. By joining together, organized labor can have a profound effect on politics and culture. And organized labor would do very well if we only had to fight the employers. But unfortunately, the employers have also organized. Some of their organizations are really visible, such as the Chamber of Commerce, the National Association of Manufacturers, the National Right to Work Committee and the American Legislative Exchange Council. Others, and there are many of them, are part of what we call dark money. That's not what hurts us the most in working people. What really hurts us the most among working people is the government, where the employers organized to have the government put muzzles and reins on the labor movement. They were particularly worried about the powerful railroad unions that had already tried more than once to stop all commerce. Congress passed the Railway Labor Act in the 1920s. In the next decade, when unions were organizing whole industries, they passed the National Labor Relations Act. Both acts were considerably strengthened after World War II when union organizing was at its height, and they were made a lot worse than they had been. At the end of World War II, American workers organized more unions and had more union actions than ever before. Wages shot up and significant political advances were made and the American people achieved the highest living standards in the world. The employers and their government struck back hard. New regulatory laws were passed to undermine the unions and they were successful. New union organizing petered away. Progressive causes were put aside. Internationalism was just forgotten about. America's unions settled into a long period of isolation from other workers. American work went offshore. Unions withered away from having 35% of all American workers in unions down to the present 11% or less. Change is slowly being forced on the labor movement. By the 1980s I think a lot of working people had figured out that they couldn't just uh, buck the employers and the government both and so they began to change the way they were doing things. This, this became uh, real noticeable among the steelworkers back in the 1980s, even in the 1970s. In 1995, for the first time in over 100 years, the outgoing AFL CIO leadership did not get to choose their own successors. They elected new leadership, and some of that leadership was quite uh, important. For example, they elected the first woman into top leadership, Linda Chavez Thompson, Uh, who presently lives in San Antonio. She was the first woman and the first person of color in top labor leadership. In 1997 at a convention they took out the anti-communist prohibition in their constitution. In 1999, recognizing that racism was one of their biggest problems, they stopped calling for the deportation of all undocumented workers and instead started organizing them. They broadened their outreach to women people of color, gays, and communities. The Texas AFL-CIO, the local federation here in Texas, has a special campaign on climate change. In August of 2021, less than two weeks ago, the AFL-CIO elected a top leadership consisting of two African-American men and one woman. Liz Shuler, the new president of the AFL-CIO, told labor leaders in her first talk to us, quote, Labor Day is when we raise our voices. And that explains how I happen to be here with you today, lifting mine. This is Jean Lance on the Workers' Beat Extra.